as you're seated. Uh, I think we can all agree there's a whole lot of Christmas songs out there. And, you know, it's kind of interesting we debate when we should start singing them or playing them. And it seems to get earlier every year. And, you know, I'm one of those guys, I'm a purist, like after Thanksgiving, go. And then you want to, you know, sing a little bit, but you, you want to peak at, like on Christmas Day. And it just, that philosophy just doesn't work in this life, does it? Not at all. But, you know, there are some Christmas songs that w- we sing them and uh, it, gives them this, it gives us this warm sentimental, sentimental feeling but it fades real quickly. And then there's some Christmas carols uh, that we can sing, and it gives us this theology that we can slowly grow into. And O Holy Night is one of those. And it has this line that all of us know. It says, a weary world rejoices. And some of you uh, can give me a hearty amen today. This Christmas child that we celebrate this baby born in a manger in Bethlehem you know he would one day say Matthew records it for us in eleven twenty-eight to 30 he says come to me all you who are talk to me today church come to all come to me all you who are and some versions say heavy laden it's like a weight that's on you anybody got a weight that's on you don't raise your hand people will look at you and feel sorry for you but uh, you know it and a lot of us honestly I would probably the majority of us hard-pressed to keep up with the pace of modern life and the the weary world we're we're weary a a, a weary world and here's one of the reasons i believe i thought about as i was writing a a sermon you better be thinking about things if you're writing a sermon and delivered in front of um intelligent people like yourselves but we're weary first i would say because we have to keep up anybody feel that way we're going to kick back in a moment to corinth to this ancient city of corinth for our christmas to give you uh, some perspective today and Corinth was a lot like us, but we're weary because we can't keep up. I know an entire group. I'm married to one of them. I've seen it, the weariness of being a mother. Uh, I stumbled upon this a few weeks back. This was a letter written, um, if we can get a portion of a, it was an article written, How to Be a Mom in 2017. She says uh, this, make sure your children's academic, psychological, mental, spiritual, physical, and social needs are met while being careful not to overstimulate, underestimate improperly medicate helicopter or neglect them in a skin-free processed food free plastic free body positive socially conscious egalitarian but also authoritative nurturing but fostering of independence gentle but not no overly permissive pesticide free two-story multilingual home preferably on a cul-de-sac with a backyard and 1.5 siblings at least two years apart for proper development also don't forget the coconut oil we're weary because we have to keep up she would later address this this way how to be a mom in literally every generation before ours feed them sometimes we're, we're weary because we have to keep up. So to the one who's weary today, just a reminder, okay, that this Christmas child offers you an invitation. And here's the thing. There's this a prophet Isaiah. Don't I quote him a lot? And Isaiah says, you know, in strength and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your, is your hope. And then the next verse, like we put that on coffee cups. And then the next verse says, but you will have none of it. In other words, you're so stubborn with your way of living and your pace that you won't have any of it. Like, really? Could we be that? Could you be that way? You could put it on a coffee cup and go, yeah, quietness and rest and strength. And hope, yeah. And then you live in a way that you, and I think that's true with this weariness invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary. We're weary because we feel like we have to keep up, but we're also weary and this is the heart of today and it's the heart of this series of reconciliation. We're weary because we can't get along. 
we have trouble getting along with others. George Washington uh, put it this way in his farewell address to the nation. George Washington, when he was saying goodbye to his presidency, was concerned that America would become deeply and bitterly divided. He said this, A partisan spirit serves only to distract the public councils and enfeeble the public administration. It agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms. It kindles the animosity of one part against another. It foments occasionally riot and insurrection. It opens the door to Vladimir Putin and corruption, which finds a facilitated access to the government itself through channels of party passions. He was concerned that our nation wouldn't get along. Uh, what if George Washington could see us now? Would he, would he be proud of America in 2021? Don't, don't answer. Well, you say, well, Robert, the country's too big. Let me, by the way, let me ask everybody a question. Even if you're at home watching, listening, uh, how many of you, you know, would want to just uh, like live in a different place without people? Like, the, you know, you want to, the people who don't believe like you, they could just live in another place. How many of you would want that? Is that would that be good? The answer, look, the correct answer is good. Uh, well, you say, well, the country's too big. It, it is already too v- divided. There's uh, nothing that we can do about it. So, so where do we find it? Well, we find it in the marketplace. That's the place of re- relational harmony will happen in the marketplace. Uh-oh, office politics and turf wars and silos and favoritism and incompetent workers and bad bosses. Apparently, the pressure to make money is not where we can find this unity and harmony and community. We can't find it in our country. We can't find it in the workplace. Well, I know we'll look for it and we'll look for it at home with, with our family and with our relatives and our in-laws over Christmas. That's when we'll find perfect peace. Children have written letters to God through the years. A lot of us are reading letters to Santa. Now, one child wrote this letter to God several years ago. Dear God, I bet it is very hard for you to love everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. (laughs) Oh, well, okay, we can't find it in our country. We won't find it in the marketplace, in the office. Hey, we can't find it with relatives and in laws and even the people that are in our nuclear family well I know the church that'll be the place where there's no divisions or fractions where there's no uh, petty quarrels or small-mindedness or battling of egos that's where everyone will get along and Paul wrote this it's framing this series second Corinthians chapter 5 and it says this we got some words highlighted for you and this is from God who through Christ, by the way, what's from God? Anybody know second? One time I said, I, I did this kind of impromptu, and I said, if you know this verse prior to this, uh, if you quote it out loud, I'll buy you lunch. And a guy was sitting right here, and he quoted it out loud, and I went, and he actually bought my lunch because I'm the preacher. It says, Second Corinthians 5, 17, old things have passed, new things have come. Behold, we're, we're new in Christ. If Christ is in your life, then old things have passed away. You have this newness. Now, we got to walk in the newness of life, Right? But there's this positional newness that you're given. Now, practically, you got to walk it out. Just read the verse, preacher. Here we go. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
the fractions and divisions, the petty quarrels and bitter jealousies, the things that uh, bring us down and that divide us in our country, in our homes, in our workplace, and in our churches. The writer of this says that we've been given something in Christ. It, it, It doesn't exist within you, it's outside of you. And it is, we'll say it at Christmas, it's a gift that you have to receive. And then he begins to work in us, and then you're given a title and a position of being an ambassador. You represent him in the strange and foreign land. So I'm going to stay in Corinth, and I want to back up to, this was 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have a Bible and want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you can. If not, just look at with me on the screen. I'm not even going to give you time to turn there unless you're a real good Bible turner. You may do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 17, a few funny names in here to pronounce. But I want to have the, the mindset of reconciliation. Because Paul doesn't write this in a tower, an ivory tower, or in the halls of academia. He doesn't write it hermetically sealed away from problems. He writes it in the raw, in the messy real world that they lived and that you and I live as well. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. A woman spoke up. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized None of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize. This is an odd saying. Don't, it doesn't mean what you think it does. I'll explain it later. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom lets the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. I want to talk about this in the balance of our time. And I'll honor the time that we have. Uh, The city of Corinth was uh, located on an isthmus. Look to the person next to you and say isthmus. If you are uh, playing Jeopardy and they say a narrow strip of land that connects two areas, other areas of land, you would need to say what is an isthmus. Okay, and Corinth was, 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 it was just a strategic, super strategic location. Uh, It was gold in, in a, in a, really kind of literal way and the the connection point was this if you look to the left there was a harbor that led to asia if you look to the to the other side there was a harbor that led to italy and to europe europe and so it was right there and very uh, located just like a plum piece of real estate a location 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 but rome uh, many, many years B.C., 150 is the estimate b- before Christ, they uh, destroyed the city of Corinth. And there's a, a guy that everybody's heard of, Julius Caesar, came along and J.C. Uh, rebuilt Corinth uh, some, uh, just a few decades uh, before Christ. And Corinth was filled during the, it was like, a, we would call it in America, we would call it a startup Anybody done a startup? Ten years ago, Fondren Church was a startup. And a startup, you know, there's all this energy. There's newness. And so 
Corinth was a, was a startup under the leadership of Julius Caesar. So it, it attracted, there was no, no uh, you know, nobody was from there. Ever lived or been to a place like nobody's from here. I've lived in some transient places, Florida and California, and there's pockets of those places like everybody's from somewhere else. Uh, my wife moved here from one of those places and she uh, learned that a lot of people are from here. And so we had to make sure and thank God for the church and gracious people opened up and explained things uh, to her, Mississippi things to her. And she's a, a quick learner, but you know, a lot of us are steeped here and from here, but Corinth was a place because of its destruction and being rebuilt. Nobody was from there. No uh, aristocracy, uh, no nobility. It was full of ex-soldiers and ex-slaves and sailors, sailors who would come into some money, many of them, and some leisure and some free time. It was a, a mob of hungry, scrappy, high-achieving, risk-taking people who were sort of uh, discouraged and despondent and done with old ways and old traditions, and they were looking to leverage new opportunities. So there was wealth that was created. There was an influx of capital that led to some serious wealth in that land. Some sailors got into some money, and as I said, they had some leisure time on their hands, and it became an anything-goes type of place when it came to uh, sexuality. Plato, uh, Plato had some writing, and in a couple of his works, it's, he refers in a general sense to uh, likening someone to a woman of Corinth, and there was a lot of that in this area. And Paul writes this to these people. And you could describe it. Now, there was status there. There was a, um, a Greek goddess who was the goddess of love and beauty and fertility, Aphrodite. And she's in the Greek pantheon, some of you may know. But there was a temple that was dedicated to Aphrodite in Corinth. And like that, the buildings, it was like, I don't know, like Dubai has been the last couple of decades just like cranes and things where they didn't have cranes of course but they had builders I don't know how they did it but all these buildings had inscriptions that promoted the actual builder it was a society where people were promoting themselves you could describe Corinth as ladder climbers as image seekers as as money makers as money pursuers pleasure pursuers and that's what was happening in this land of Corinth and there's a new church and the church is taking root and there's a woman, and Paul writes in this call, he would later talk about this ministry of reconciliation. He was, he was writing, and there's evidence in these letters directly that there was a little bit of back and forth. Um, foreign world does. The, without our quick immediacy with the communication, I mean, it happened. You have to talk to great-grandparents and uh, their ancestors to find out about this. But they wrote, and they, there was some back and forth and they wrote to Paul one time, but when they wrote to him, they really didn't mention anything about a problem. It was like about marriage and sexuality, and they were trying to stir up some controversies. But it wasn't, they, wasn't, they weren't pinpointing a problem. So you could look at this and say, ah, Chloe, a woman, she gossiped. She should have let the dead dog lie. She, she brought up the problems. Look, she did the right thing. Here's the thing. A problem needs to be properly identified. Do you realize that? I preach this way quite often, but don't neglect. Don't look past. Deal with the problem. And when a problem is brought up, and I think there probably could have been some argument, arguing back and forth. I've noticed this, that sometimes we're like, 
hey, you know, something's brought up about somebody or someone about people, and, and there's kind of an argument about the process. Well, did they go to this person? Did they, did they go to that? And y'all know I preach that. I, I've done a, almost a whole series on Matthew 18. Here's the process, but the process rarely is perfect. And, you know, the, and sometimes we're so focused on the process and calling someone out because they didn't do the right process that we forget the heart of the matter. And if you know that there's a problem in a church, in this church, if you know there's a problem with me, if you know there's a problem that's threatening the gospel or hurting your family or your own heart, that problem needs to be dealt with. It needs to be brought up. Will you be willing to be the person to talk about the problem? And here's what Chloe does. She brings it up to the person who planted the church. To the person who has the greatest influence, apart from Jesus himself, the person who could do something about the problem. Don't waste, a, I'm going to talk process, don't waste a ton of your energy talking to people that can't do something. Talk to the person who can do something about it. Here's what we know about Chloe. She was a leader of her household, so rare in that time. She was a woman of wealth in the church, so rare at that time. I want to make sure you understand Remember, Paul would tell Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, God has given us richly all things to enjoy. And the Bible has lots of rich people in it. But the early church, the first century church in Palestine was made up of a predominance of the poor and impoverished. It was all around them. And Chloe was a woman of wealth, a leader of her household, but she used her, uh, she, she put her wealth and her household uh, and her position at the disposal of the church. She wanted the church to flourish. And when you want something to go well, you bring it up. You talk about what is a threat to what could hurt something from not going well. And Chloe does that. So in Corinth, this ladder-climbing, status-seeking, money-making, pleasure-pursuing, people-dividing, image-obsessed culture, this place... The church had taken root. But what would happen at this point? This was a critical point, And Paul writes and says, be of the same mind. And here's what he said to them, that there is some competition that's gotten in. He said, some people follow this person. Some people follow this person. Some people follow this person. He mentions here, Paul, Paul was the planter. Then Apollos came along early. And Apollos was a, a good boxer in Rocky. No, Apollos was a, a, a dynamic. Uh, he could knock it out of the park as a preacher. And he was good, so some people kind of pitched in with him. And there's Cephas, there's Peter, and some would say, hey, I'm following him. Some would say, I'm following Jesus, which I don't know if you interpret that. Let me help you here. That was like the over-spiritualized crowd. Like Those people are probably the biggest problem. Like, I, I, I follow Jesus. But they were probably following somebody or trying to get their own following. They, they were, that was the churchy answer. And Paul is writing and saying, be careful with this. Now remember... Those, the culture, let's take the backdrop of the culture. And by the way, just this on following, it's really important to have a mentor or mentors in your life. It's a, it's a common thing. I've heard from a couple of you recently. Hey, do you know someone who could mentor me about this? I love the email. I try to connect and try to, I, I mean, our hope in the spirit of Ephesians 4 is that the church would be connected, joints and ligaments. We would be connected together and that people would be mentoring people. Read Titus, another epistle, another letter. Hey, older women with younger women, older men with younger men, and they, there's a lot to give there and that's the kind of church that that we want to become and I see pockets of that I would love for that uh, to grow and grow you need a mentor and you need to follow someone Paul would say in Philippians 3 hey I I I have I've got a lot of growth to do but he would also say in Philippians 4 follow me the things you've heard from me and seen from me and learned from me do these things and the peace of God 
will be in your life. So Paul, he would say in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. So following spiritual leaders is a good thing. I would say all of you need a spiritual leader. I, I hope you understand the spirit of this, but this is your church. You're a member, a regular attendee, especially if you're a member or a leader here in some ways. Um, I'm a leader in your life. I'm your pastor. So there's a bit of followership. But so now after having said that, let me say, be very, very careful. Be very, very careful with that, and never before, in my knowledge, has there been more, more debris between following and leading because of the abuse of power, because of leaders, because of Jesus would warn us of this, because of wolves in sheep's clothing. And so following is a good thing, but I would say following is a careful thing. Don't put your spiritual future and development on one person. And be humble and just do everything you can to make sure that person, man or woman, is following Jesus. And here's what I love about Paul. Let me show you that there were, there were people, men, okay, patriarchy definitely. Thank God, by the way, how forward thinking is the New Testament? Like Chloe and you see stories, Priscilla, so, so many of these stories. It's really awesome to think about uh, the Bible in a gender way. It really is freeing and, and invigorating. There's a group of men called sophists. And this uh, word here, it, it derives from a Greek word, Sophia. We name people, name women, Sophia. The word is what? Anybody know? The word is wisdom. And these were men who uh, had a lot of wisdom. They were what we would call sages. They were a sage on a stage. I, I feel like, I feel that pressure uh, every time I preach. I got to be a sage. I got to have some wisdom. I got to say something to get past you, to, 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 to keep you coming back and to encourage you, to minister to you. But a sage it was on a stage. And by the way, Corinth shows us that there, was, uh, there were arenas. There was one theater that housed, uh, that had 14,000, enough for 14,000 people. And some historians think, man, the people would go nuts over certain people. Here were some men, you know, uh, Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and some. Here's some names uh, for you as well. Uh, Favorinus, Herodes, Atticus, and Licinius. These were uh, all in history that you can read about if you googly them and you can see that uh, they were sages. They were sophists. They had wisdom and they had followings and people would want to come and they had moments where they would speak and it got close to like a, this is my own sanctified imagination looking at history, but it was at times like a Travis Scott concert. I mean, it got crazy and they crowded together and there was too many people in a certain place and they wanted to be a part of it. They wanted to hear these guys dispense their wisdom and it was celebrity infused. And people had a following. And the Roman, the leaders of the Roman Empire would curry the favor of these men. They would seek to have them over for dinner and to be associated with them. And so into this ladder climbing status seeking celebrity enraged culture, Paul is, he is a tent maker. He is, he references himself as a slave. Isn't it funny, in John 15, Jesus said, hey, you're no longer ser servants, you're my friends. And then Paul's like writing these letters going, I'm a slave, I'm a servant, I'm a servant. But he was writing to people in, in this slave society, and he wanted them to know his allegiance. And he wanted them to know that he wasn't going to seek status and try to climb a ladder. And he wanted us to know in God's sovereignty that that's not the way for us to live, to climb ladders and try to get our way, uh, make our way to the top. And Paul made tents, which was menial labor. And why did he do this? It wasn't just an act of humility. He did this so that he could speak the word with great boldness, Acts chapter 4, and read all of Acts. So he could preach the word with great boldness, and he, there would be no strings attached. You ever been involved in a church where there's a heavy donor or two? 
and the heavy donor uh, has a meeting with the pastor a lot and dictates a lot. That can be uh, good. I welcome any heavy donor, by the way. But uh, I never want to welcome it with strings attached. Am I right? Why? Because you want to preach the word. And the goal of preaching is not to entertain. We can do that from time to time. I definitely want you to stay awake. The whole counsel of God. And if you're preaching the whole counsel of God, you'll get emails every week. And if you're not, you're not preaching the whole counsel. Now, don't try to be a provocateur. If anybody grows up to be a preacher, don't sit up here and try to be a provocateur. Don't try to do things to stir it up. But Paul didn't want any strings attached. He wanted his motives to be pure. And he wanted to be able to preach the whole counsel of God, Acts chapter 20. Now, into this, this tent maker says, I don't want to be this way. I don't want this to be about me. I want it to be about Jesus. By the way, when the church makes it about celebrity, let me ask you, how's that going for us? Anybody on social media? Anybody been around town? Anybody been around the country? Anybody listened to the 12, 14 episodes of Rise and Fall? How's that working for us? The celebrity culture. And Paul is saying when you develop your spiritual growth and your sense of community in church around a celebrity or celebrities, you're doing it the wrong way. You have emptied the church of its power and its mission because it's about Jesus. And here's what's in Paul's heart, man. When Apollos does well, I do well. When Cephas preaches, it works well. By the way, here's what was said about Paul. You've heard me preach before that I think he's one of the most brilliant thinkers in the history of the world. How's that for potential hyperbole? Um, here's what it was said about him in this passage, 2 Corinthians 10, 10. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. How would that make you feel? <laughs> hey, I don't want to hear you, but put it, put it in writing. I'll read your email. I'm just not coming to your church. That's a great book but I don't want to hear you speak. But Paul would preach long. I'm going to honor the time today, but Paul would, he would preach really, really long. And there's this great story. Don't you love this? There's a man named Eutychus. Some of you, know, some of you are smiling. You know where I'm going. There's a man named Eutychus and Paul's preaching and he's preaching. He's going long and Eutychus is sitting up in the balcony. Hey, y'all in the balcony. And he's sitting uh, next to a, a window and Paul just keeps preaching and Eutychus falls asleep. Everybody awake? Eutychus falls asleep and he falls to his death. Now, in our saying, when, a, when, a, when someone stands up here and gives a good sermon, we'll say, man, you killed it. And back then, I bet they said, Paul, you, you killed him. <laughs> but the story ends well because there's a miracle of uh, healing there. But Paul wanted us to know, he wanted the church to know that the bitter jealousy thing is not the way. So isn't it strange? There's this culture all around us, just as there's a culture all around us. And so while we're not called to be obnoxious or weird or holier than thou, or to think we possess um, giftedness or traits that other people don't have, we're not to be shaped by the culture around us. And the church was really confused. They thought it was about ladder climbing and status seeking. And Paul is saying we need to make tents. Again, there's the wealthy people that are using their wealth to share it and bless it. By the way, can I just commend you to everyone who gives. Thank you for your giving to our church. 
You can re- keep reading in 1 Corinthians 16. Paul calls out people, and part of it is their generosity. I was leaving my office one day this week, just a few days ago, and one of our janitors, a man who's worked in this building for decades, he stopped me and he thanked me and he came over to me and he shook my hand. I thought that would be sufficient, but he pulled me to him and gave me a man hug. It's okay if it's a man hug. And he gave me a man hug and he said, thank you, Brother Green, for the gift. He was thanking me for a year-end bonus. And can I just say, it's so good. I'm so glad to come out of COVID. We've, we've uh, had to fire nobody. We didn't have to lay anybody. And I'm, I may fire somebody soon, but we didn't have to lay anybody off for any reason of economy. And we were able even to hire a couple of people to help move our church forward. Have y'all met Lily? Have you met Larry? These are good people that are investing in people. But we've been able to bless some people. And what a wonderful thing to bless somebody who works hard on the daily to make this building clean and to make things go. And, you know, the scripture says in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, like, let the word of Christ and the spirit of God dwell in you and fill you. And part of the result is singing and making melody in your hearts. And the staff know this here, but man, every day George is in the building, he's going to give you a word from the scripture and he's going to be singing a song. I catch him sometimes vacuuming in here or any place around uh, this building. And he's singing a great hymn of the faith or a song. I caught him singing a a contemporary praise and worship song the other day, Lauren. But always, what a wonderful way to bless our people. Nick and the finance team tells me we're short of our budget. We're not going to panic. We're just going to ask you to give. We need your giving over the next couple of weeks. We don't want to just make budget. We want to exceed it. And we've got some really cool things that we're working on to create space for Reclaim Project, a dueling corner room, more needed space for us. And we can furnish this and build it out in a way that would make you proud and bring people uh, to our building that would be able to use for Bible studies and uh, create a, a room for grooms on Saturdays and some really cool things that we need to move forward in this next era of our life of our church but there were generous people but the generous people were challenged just like the poor people because everybody needs to give and every gift is needed and when we cling tightly to the things that we think are ours we live divided and fractured and so paul writes some strange things he says he talked about baptism and it's so interesting that for 2,000 years, baptism has been such a point of division. It, it, it's been such a source of fighting and splitting with churches. Some churches uh, say that you sprinkle with the water. Some say you pour the water on the forehead. Some say you fully immerse them in the water. You know, like Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan. You fully immerse them. The Quakers don't use water at all. Some people say that only adults are baptized. There's another tribe, another church denomination, others that say if you don't baptize infants, if they die, they'll end up in a place uh, called limbo. Some people say that you baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And some say that you only baptize in the name of Jesus. Some people say that baptism is a sacrament. And other people are like, what is a sacrament? Some people say that you have to have godparents. And other people are like, what are godparents? We are so divided by this subject of baptism. And Paul was not saying, as it appeared. Okay, remember, take every verse in context. When you see something that's a problem, like, I'm not baptizing people. Like, Paul's not baptizing. I'm not going to get baptized. Some of you, look at me. You need to be baptized. So don't take this as a verse that gives you, uh, you know, that plays into your fear and anxiety or reluctance to be baptized. 
Get baptized if you haven't been baptized. Some churches say that you have to be baptized in their church. Some people say, some churches say that uh, they will accept baptism from another church. And some churches won't accept baptism from another church. There's a group called, I'm going to pick on them today, sorry. There's a group called the Independent Baptist Church. And they, they won't accept baptism from another Baptist church. You have to be baptized in the Independent Baptist Church. So we fight over this. And, and here's what was happening there. It wasn't so much the descriptions or the method or whatever. It was... It was who was baptizing them. Back to the celebrity thing. They were gaining status by who their spiritual leaders were. And it led to fractions and divisions. And Paul is saying, get baptized. But my deepest calling is to plant a church. By the way, if you plant a church, uh, preach the word. Lead people to Jesus. Baptize the converts. Grow them in their faith. Rinse and repeat. That's the essence of what the church should be about. And so there's these divisions. And churches get divided over preferences. Have you ever noticed that? Anybody burn from a previous church? Anybody burn from Fonner Church and this is your last day? Don't say yes. We, we argue and we get divided. We live unreconciled lives over preferences of preachers and worship leaders and styles of music, and spontaneous versus planned, and formal versus informal, and articles of clothing, and instruments that we use, and technology that we use or don't use. We get divided over so many things, can, and we get divided over young and old. Can I just say, can we be a church that fights against a disunity over stupid stuff? Anybody want to join me? Anybody want to just help me? Like, I think we'll, make, we'll need to do that. We'll need to look at people in love and go, man, that's stupid stuff. Like, I love you. That's just stupid stuff. And if it's not about the core of the gospel, let's just call it out. And if we're not tickling your preference and your fancy, find uh, another place. Uh, but find a place where you can call and you can, it can be a faith family to you. And we wouldn't fight over stupid stuff. So whether you're young or old, whether you're in the hip category or the hip replacement category, uh, join us in just focusing on Jesus and what really, really matters. And Paul would say this in Romans 6, 3. He would talk about baptism because I told you it was important. He said, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Not the verse I would use to invite you to be baptized. But I do want to say to you that the most important thing about baptism is death. It's your death. It's you saying, I want to die to my old self and to my ego. And I want to be identified with Jesus Christ. So a thought as we close, Lauren and the team, you guys, if you would, make your way up. No instruments. I'm against instruments. Just kidding. A couple of thoughts as we close. Do we have those last two? Unity and harmony and community are not a product of being with people who are like us or educated about us. Now, you may have heard something sort of kind of maybe like that before. And you might have given a half-hearted amen to it. But just try that experiment. The only people you know and the only people you hang out with, the only people you're committed to are the same identity and ethnicity, the, the same political affiliation. They agree with you on the same sacred cows and partisan politics and pet items. 
of church and life and faith. But the richness of the gospel is for us to be a people striving, to understand that it's not about being with people who are like us, but it's something far different. The next thought as we close. The problem is not the difference of opinion, but it's the brokenness of the will. And I can't help but think that the enemy gets into our midst and gets into homes. Two couples I know are battling the potential divorce right now. It's a secret to a lot of people in their world. And we say the problem is a difference of opinion. Can I just tell you, you're really not compatible with anybody. It's like, you're, you're really not. And I'm not either. Because I've got a flawed, broken sin nature in me. And even if I have a nice decorum and get along nicely sometimes, it's just raging within me and you. And we say, oh, well, we had it, you know, good guy there ain't no bad guys just you and me and we just disagree that's a country song from the 70s that three of you would recognize but that's how so many of us walk in this uh, walk in this fractured world in this divided world so unity Paul would say in Ephesians 4 maintain the unity of the spirit maintain it the spirit has given it to us but we've got to be baptized in Jesus we've got to identify with who Christ is we've got to walk in his ways and understand that our will our stubbornness has to be broken and here's what I know it's your stubborn with it some of you're like yeah, it's a difference of opinion Uncle Larry's coming over for Christmas and we got a difference of opinion but deeper than that difference of opinion is the stubbornness of Larry's will and also your very own. And what I'm asking you this week of Christmas, I'm asking you to come back on Friday. Is that the day, Friday? Nobody knows what day it is now. I think Friday's Christmas Eve. To come back on Friday, Christmas Eve, to invite Uncle Larry, to invite people to come with you, to invite some people. Look, I was walking yesterday and I had a conversation with with a, a neighbor about a half mile from my house, not in church, not doing well, not being invited anywhere. Be open to who God would have you invited. Come and be a part. But deeper than that, let God reconcile you. Be reconciled to Him to carry that, to carry, I would call it a weight, yes, but the joy, the joy of being a reconciler, the joy of being a uniter, of staying away from disunity lack of harmony. Stand with me. I'm going to stop preaching in just a second. Some of you are going to fall out in the balcony and die. And I don't know if I can bring, I don't know if I can bring, I can do like Paul and preach long. I don't think I can bring you back to life if you die. So bow for a second if that's the best thing for you. But just for a moment, just ask God. Ask Him for reconciliation. Where there's distance, would you ask Him to bring closeness? Would you trust him that he's washed away your sin, that he's taken care of it? 
that the wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, that you have peace, Romans 5, 1, you've been justified by faith, therefore you have peace with God. Let me close with this as before we pray and sing and then go. I said at the beginning that we sing a lot of Christmas songs, you know this. And some of them are warm and sentimental and they leave us real quickly. But some lyrics provide good theology that we can grow into slowly. A weary world rejoices. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. What's the line there? God and sinners reconciled. Let's be a place of reconciliation. Let's be a place that calls out the lack of harmony. Let's fight for what matters. In a world that's so bitterly divided and a world that's confused about what isolation means, the church is the answer in Jesus to point people to community and closeness and love. Let's be that. Father, would you minister in this place as we sing? God, would you minister to to pain and Lord, would you do your work to those who are giving up hope? I pray you speak to them today. In Jesus, uh, we pray. We're here to pray for you. The altar is open. Let's be obedient as we sing.